It is a joy and privilege to be with you this evening. As uh, the pastor mentioned, we will be spending some time together, about six weeks worth, seven altogether, if you include Fourth of July. And we're going to be taking a look at biblical principles on personal finance. The Bible is not just a book of high-flung, spiritual, head-in-the-cloud type of ideas. It actually reaches us on the ground. And nothing is more practical, nothing impacts all of us more than money. And so we're going to be taking a look at money. We're going to be looking at principles, but we're also going to try to be making things practical. And so today, our first topic, and I'm going to try to do my best to step back so people on this side can see, we're going to be looking at some common myths about money, seven of them, in fact, and we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about them. So we've already had prayers, so I'm going to dive right in. And uh, these are, this is the preview of the topics that we're going to be covering over the six weeks together. So the first three weeks before 4th of July, these are the topics. We're going to talk about the money myths today. Next week is going to be an exciting one. We're going to be talking about the power to get wealth and asking the question, does God want me to be a millionaire? Hmm, that's an interesting one. The third session, we'll be looking at debt. How do we get out of it? How do we view it? What are appropriate forms of debt? We're going to get practical. How do you buy a car without a loan? And that's when I'm actually going to share my story about how we we bought our home, my wife and I, and how we paid it off in two years working on a single income. Actually, I take that back. We became a single income home after we paid off the house, so I need to be accurate about that. So you'll have to wait until then, and if we have time, I'll tell you how I made it through my graduate program at Southern Debt Free as well. We'll see if we have time. And then we'll take a break, 4th of July, Independence Day, we'll light some money on fire so that they blow up in the sky. And then on the fourth session, we're gonna be talking about the B word, budgeting. Oh, how are we gonna budget our money? Counting the cost, saving, spending, budgeting. And then session number five, I will say just up front, is going to be on the topic I get more questions about than any other, and that is investing. Okay, anyone, any of you have questions about investing? I'm just curious. Yeah, so a few of you. Generally, there are. So we're going to look at principles of that. And then number six really is going to be, I'll be honest, number six is still in construction. And part of the reason is because as we go through the next few weeks, I believe there are going to be questions that come up that are going to inform what we're going to cover at that last session. And really, it's going to be taking a comprehensive look. We're going to look at what, how to plan our own finances, looking at the seasons of life, dealing with the financial planning pyramid. It sounds all hokey, you know, like all mystical. It's not that. It's like a food pyramid. It's just a way of organizing a comprehensive view of our financial picture, and then we're going to zero in on the areas that, based on our discussion together, uh, I think we need to focus on more. So there you have it. Six sessions coming up over the next seven weeks. So why should you listen to me? So a little bit about myself. Uh, Pastor Jeremy explained a little bit already, but on the personal, the financial side, I'm actually a professionally designated financial planner. I actually have some training. I have the CHFC designation. I own my own practice, I have a financial planning practice, I'm a small business owner, and 
that's a single planner firm, so I don't have employees there, but I also work at Audioverse, where I do have employees, and so I'm also an employer, so I ha I'm an employee, I'm a business owner, entrepreneur, financial planner, and I'm an employer. So I do have a few, uh, a little bit of experience dealing with such things. I do have a business degree, I have a master's in business from Southern Adventist University, but more important than an MBA to deal with our money is we need to be able to do math. Right? So I actually was a high school teacher, math teacher as well. And uh, so I mentioned already, I got my master's degree from Southern, debt-free. We paid off our home in two years. And the year we paid off our home, actually the month before our baby was born in 2015, we paid off our house. And so uh, our daughter Leilani is there. She was born in 2015. Liana there was born in 2021. So we are proud parents of two vivacious girls. And everybody says, oh, once you have kids, it just nukes the budget. Well, our numbers actually doesn't bear that out. In 2016, the first full year that we were parents, we spent 25%. It took 25% of our take-home pay or our gross income uh, to fund our lifestyle. We gave away 26% and we were able to save 49%. Well, what about more recent times? You know, with the economy and inflation and all the stuff we hear in the, in, in the news. Like, we've got two kids now also. Like, it must be worse. So last year, 2022, we actually spent 17%. We gave 27% and we saved 56%. So this is a little insight into our personal budget in our home. And of course, during that time, I did have, you know, raises. Uh, so I did earn more, which certainly helps with the percentages, of course. So since 2015... Uh, we have been a single income home, and this will explain a little bit why, part of the reason why we paid off our house so quickly, uh, because my wife stays at home with the kids now, and I am the only income, bringing in the only income, and uh, everyone also assumes, oh, you must have a rich uncle, or you have a secret stash of Bitcoin somewhere, or gold bars that you found in the couch from Samaritan Center. Um, no, no such thing in our home. Uh, I'm, we're very fortunate that both sets of our parents and our kids' grandparents, they're still alive, so no inheritance to speak of. And the one, I would say, privilege, huge privilege that we had was that our parents did pay for our undergraduate degree. Uh, but once the, we got our college degree, we were on our own. So, you know, Asian parents, we... We had four extra years. We didn't get let loose after high school. But, so that was a huge blessing, and we're very thankful for that. So I do want to add that caveat, because not everyone has that uh, special privilege in their home. Okay, thank you. I just want to make sure everyone can see. So this is uh, a little... These are the three areas that you can... Or three ministries or websites that, where you can find... Uh, more information about what I do. Saving the Crumbs is a personal finance blog that kind of got us into the personal finance world. My wife and I started writing this, I don't know, 2012, 2013, because we're really weird with money. We're super frugal. We do weird things with money, and we thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to just document the thing and uh, put it online? Maybe someone will read it. If nothing else, it'll be fun to share with our kids someday. Well, people did start reading it, and uh, we, I started getting speaking invitations. GYC was a big one, Michigan Camp Meeting, different places like that. And those messages got recorded and they got put on Audioverse. And Audioverse is, of course, where I work, but more importantly to what we're talking about tonight. 
It was a platform where then many other people started hearing what I was saying. And then I began getting individual questions, people saying, hey, uh, can I talk to you privately? I have my specific questions. And then it started being more than just advice and counseling. And it was like, hey, can you just manage my money for me? And I said, I, that's actually illegal. I cannot do that without proper licensure and the regulations and compliance and all of those good, that, all that good stuff. But after the questions started coming in, I was looking around, who can I refer them to? And these people said, we want to work with a church member, someone of our faith, someone that understands our values. You can understand, money is a very, it reflects our values in so many ways. And so I couldn't really find anyone. And so I got some mentors, asked them what should we do, and multiple of them just said, hey, maybe this is God telling you for you to do it. So a couple years ago, I invested the money, went back to school, got my training, and after that, I formed my personal finance uh, firm, a financial planning firm called Advent Edge Financial, and you can find uh, the websites. You can just type them in online and Google or so now I am a financial planner part-time while working for Audioverse full-time. So that kind of gives you a brief professional history of how I ended up where I ended up. All right, so all the preamble aside, let's get down to the dollars and cents now. Seven com common money myths. So this presentation tonight, we're just going to go through seven common myths that I have heard, that perhaps you have heard, and using this as a framework both to give us a broad picture of some of the basic principles I believe the Bible presents about money, but also setting the stage for what we're going to talk about. So this is almost like a little teaser, right? It's like a little trailer summary of what we're going to look at in the next uh, few weeks together. So let's dive right in. Money myth number one. We shouldn't talk about money because it is the root of all evil. For those of us in here who are familiar with the Bibles, I think uh, you understand that there's a problem here. Let's take a look at the verse where this idea comes from. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many, with many sorrows. Is money the root of all evil? What is it, really? It's the love of money, isn't it? Now, so is the problem in the green pieces of paper or the gold coin? Or is it in the, the heart of the person that's holding the paper and the coin? And uh, maybe another more uncomfortable question. Is it possible to be plagued with a love of money even if we don't have any money? Hmm. So this idea of the love of money being the root of all evil... It's not, a uniquely it's not a unique phenomenon that afflicts only the rich, all right? It can afflict all of us. And this is one of the reasons why, contrary to this idea that I think sometimes persists, especially, I think, within polite society, uh, maybe especially in the church, is this idea that, ooh, money is taboo. We shouldn't talk about it. It's just personal. Let's just let them deal with it. It's just, you know, that, that's none of my business. Well, the Bible says... If we're going to deal with the root of all evil, we have to gain the victory over this thing called the love of money. There are many, that, that's the core issue, and then there's many different symptoms that can flow from the root. Uh, so, how does this manifest itself? Okay, money is everywhere. We think, process, subconsciously in dollars and cents. 
How many of you drove by a gas station today? Is there not a subconscious process that happens in the back of our minds? We drive by, oh, gas is up. <laughs> what if you drove by and you saw a gas station for gas for $1.99 per gallon? Like, what, 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 what would be your reaction? Yeah, I saw it right here. It's like, stop on the brake, U-turn, I am like filling every pot and pan I've got, right? But then we're driving down and, oh, you see the, you know, on Facebook or whatever, in California, they've got like $5.75 a gallon and we just kind of, <laughs> we just kind of laugh at them, right? Because we have this mental calculation going on because we understand that, that money kind of permeates all all, everything that we do. Gas is just one of the common examples. And then we've got all of these little devices, right? Apple phones, spent a thousand dollars on these things. And then there's an app store. Not only uh, before that, you have to pay for your service. You have to get not just the 4G, you got to get the 5G now. And you got to get the latest and the greatest cases for it, and then you have to have all the little glitter and, you know, like the little stickers because you have to personalize it. And it's just like money. It's just like being sucked out. And then you get to the app store, and then that's when the vampire really starts sucking your blood. And this device can just drain your bank account completely wirelessly. Amazing how much money a little piece of glass and metal on our hands can cost us. But then even other things cost money. When we get sick, we can't go to work. And then we're wondering, oh, do I have sick time? Oh, do I have to work anyway because I have to pay the bills? Who's going to take care of the kids? Do I have to pay for daycare? All of these questions have dollar signs hanging over every single one of them. And on the grand scale, we just lived through a global pandemic. And on the news, economy, supply chain, inflation, like everything is tied in economically. Even something as invisible as a little virus impacts our dollars and cents in our wallets. What about relationships? Every broken relationship, it seems, somewhere in the mix is some dispute over money. Isn't that right? Frequently, that is the case. And then, of course, we know the cost of education, for those of us who have gone through school or are going through school or paying for someone going through school, we realize this thing called education that we can't see or, or touch, it's intangible, it costs a lot. So money permeates every single aspect of our lives. In the Bible, in the Bible there are over 2,000 texts about money. And so this notion that money is off limits for discussion, especially for polite society and in the church and all of this, the Bible just simply does not substantiate that idea when it is something that permeates so much of our lives and impacts us in such tangible ways. I actually think it is irresponsible for us not to talk about this. All right. And that's why we're here tonight and for the next six weeks. So that's myth number one. I, I think I've made my point on that. This is one that you might get a chuckle, but maybe you've heard this this myth, consumer spending is good for the economy, therefore, it's good for me to spend more money. Have you heard this? I heard this verbatim from a person who was highly educated, a supervisor, middle-level manager in a hospital system with employees, under, like really smart person earning a decent income, and this 
came out of her mouth. And I thought, did I just hear this correctly? Anyway, here's the, situ- here's the problem. There is a difference between a descriptive statement and a prescriptive de- statement. You understand the difference? Something that is descriptive is merely explaining, illustrating, showing how something is. Prescription, on the other hand, is what you should do, okay? And this idea of consumer spending is indeed a measurement of the health of the economy. We hear it on the news all the time. Consumer spending is up. Consumer spending is strong. Consumer spending is softening. We hear all of these things, you know, and then they throw in the GDP and then the CPI and like all these numbers and you're supposed to be like, oh, wow, it must be really bad. Well, what are they really saying? When they say consumer spending, the economy, it is not, it is merely an economic barometer of the health of the economy. Because if the economy is doing well, people will have more disposable income. And if they have more disposable income, there, we should see that reflected in the general economy because people are going to spend more on vacation or going out to eat or you know, leisure activities. And things are just going to, you, you should just see that permeate through the economy. It is not a recommendation on how we live. You understand the difference between a prescription and a description. Because here's the problem. 51% of Americans have $5,000 or less in savings. And this is according to The Motley Fool from last year, 2022. And 35% have $1,000 or less. And you might be thinking, well, what, what's, the, what's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem with that. The average American monthly expense is over $5,000 a month. So $5,111. So if you put these numbers together... The majority of Americans, over 51%, do not have enough money in their savings to cover one month of their expenses. So what does this mean practically? What if they get sick and they can't work for a month and they don't get paid? What if a pandemic happens and they get furloughed from their job for who knows how long? What if a recession comes and they get downsized from their job? What happens to these people? Well, they run out of money. They pull out the credit card. They start going into debt, and they get into financial distress. This is the problem with American consumerism mindset. Spending is good for the economy, they say? Well, not so fast. The Bible actually has some principles about this. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8. Go to the ant thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. The Bible says, go to the book of nature. Look at even the smallest creature. They tell us common sense. You need to save up for a time of need. You need to have some emergency buffer from catastrophe. Proverbs 21, verse 20, in the NIV, it says, The wise store up choice food in olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. While the KJV for the same verse says, there is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. We just mash these two versions together. We see the wise are those who store up or they save and the foolish are the one who spends everything. That's what the Bible says. So how much should we have in emergency savings? 
three to six months of living expenses. This is the rule of thumb, obviously, and this is how it is with personal finance. It is very personal. So depending on your circumstance, this number may vary and generally is going to vary more, not less. So three months really is the minimum, okay? But if you are in a variable seasonal type job, irregular income, unstable industry or whatnot, you may want to nudge this up to nine or 12 months, depending on your circumstance. But notice it's three to six months of living expenses. We're not talking about three to six months of your total gross income, because the theory is that your income is going to be bigger than your expenses. And the point of this is a cushion between you and catastrophe. So if you have three to six months of living expenses, suppose you do get laid off at work. You've got a cushion of three to six months to go find that next job, right? That is a huge difference from not being able to pay the first meal that you need to, to feed your family the day after you lose your job. This, is, this could be life or death in, the, in, in a sense for, for many people. So where do you put this money? Well, in a safe place, not under your mattress. You can have some cash at home, of course, but in a liquid FDIC insured or NCUA insured savings account, that would be a good place. This is a safety margin for you and your family. Here's another statement that cuts a little deeper. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The Bible is very clear that providing for our families, for their sustenance, is an obligation. It's a duty. It's a Christian duty. And that if we don't do it, we're worse than an infidel. Have mercy. So, spending might be good for someone else's economy, but not your own. All right? So, consumer spending is good for the economy, yes, but it may not be good for your personal economy. All right? So, keep that in mind. So let's get to myth number three. This is one I'm sure you've heard before. I'll be happy when I have more money. I want to take you back to my very first job. I earned $5.25 an hour. Some of you might be like, oh, wow, that's a lot for a minimum wage job. And some of you might feel like, wow, that's not much, depending on how old you are, I guess. Well, when I got my first paycheck, what do you think I was thinking about? what can I buy? That's, of course, what we think about, right, as a young man. And I wanted a pair of basketball shoes. Never mind that I am not a basketball player, in case you can't tell. But all of my friends had basketball shoes, and so I want to be just like them. And I did the math, okay? The pair of basketball shoes, and, and they were not Jordans. This is just an illustration for sake of getting your attention. For $50. So I did the math, okay? I earned $5.25 an hour. If I work 10 hours, I'll have enough money to buy the $50 pair of shoes. Math, basic arithmetic. So what do you think I thought about next? Hmm, what else can I buy? What else do I want? Well, I was an avid video game addict at the time, so I wanted a PlayStation system and, or a game, and I thought, okay, $80 for this game. I need to work another 16 hours. And then, okay, I need sunglasses. I need sunglasses because all my friends had sunglasses, even though I wear glasses. So when I wear sunglasses, I can't see, right? So never mind that. I need a digital camera because everybody had digital cameras. And I need a car. 
I'm going to be 16. I'm going to get my driver's license. And guess what? Very quickly, it became obvious that I, <laughs> I need more money. And at $5.25 an hour, a Toyota 4Runner, a truck, like, I realized there were not enough hours. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't, like, the numbers got too big. Like, I realized this was going to be a problem. And so thus began my introduction to the American dream, right? <laughs> this idea that we have to have everything that we want. And so the, the narrative on wealth today is, hey, it's what everyone does. Everyone does it. They charge it up on the credit card. They don't wait. Everyone spends their, every dollar from their paycheck. Everyone has a car payment. Everyone has a student loan. Everyone eats out all, all, all the time. Everyone on Facebook and Instagram is doing it. And what is it really communicating? At the core, it is communicating this value that happiness comes from consumption. The more you consume, the more you spend, the happier you're going to be. Once you have that car, once you have that vacation, then you're going to be happy. But what is it? It's just the rat race. That's the rat race. The American dream has become defined simply as having lots of stuff, even if it means we don't own it. That's just financed through easy debt. And so, what we hear today, I'll be happy once I take that vacation and buy that car, eat at that fancy restaurant. Look at all the nice things my friends on Instagram have. I deserve that too. The cost of living is so high. Life is so difficult. If only I was rich. It's someone else's fault that I can't get ahead. It's the president's fault. It's Congress's fault. It's my governor's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's everybody's fault. Right? This is the idea that we, we get force-fed. It's your right to have free access to whatever you want. Well, let me shift our perspective a little bit. This actually is a proper picture of the American personal financial situation. What does this, what is this? This is a volcano. And what does it illustrate? It illustrates that despite the narrative that we are all financial victims under the boot of oppression and we just don't have enough goods and services and we are so unhappy because we can't buy whatever we want, in fact, the opposite is true. Our lives are an exploding volcano of waste. We have too much luxury here in this country, in the first world. The problem is not, ha is not having enough. The problem is actually having too much. Let me explain. We live here in the quaint, mid-sized city of Chattanooga. On any given night of the week, we can go and eat any type of global cuisine we could possibly want. You want Thai food? I know a place. Mediterranean? Yep. Italian? Plenty. Mexican? Yeah. Peruvian, I, you, you know exactly which restaurant I'm talking about. <laughs> Chinese food, Korean food, whatever you want. Any night of the week. And all of these restaurants, they literally have people competing to wait on you. This is like, just imagine a couple hundred years ago, the kings and queens in Europe did not live in such lavish luxury. And then we go to the restaurant the soup is too cold. It's too salty. I found a hair in my food. What do we do? Ah, take it away. Throw it away. 
Are we not so spoiled out of our minds? And then how do we, how do we get to that restaurant? We ride in giant metal tanks. Lined with the pelts of dead animals, like the kings of old. You know, their chariots, like pelts and furs. We've got leather seats. And not only that, we can drive at 70 miles an hour just like moving our right foot like, like this. And you know what's even more crazy? Inside our vehicles, we can control the weather. We can turn a knob and change the temperature. It's called climate control. The kings and queens of Europe look at this today and they'll be like, what kind of sorcery is this? But not only that, we've got these little devices to tell us exactly how to get where we need to go. Communicating with satellites thousands of miles up in the air, in space, with a power, uh, more computing power than the terminal that sent you know, astronauts to the moon. And we use it, instead of curing cancer or world hunger, we use it to watch cat videos on YouTube. We are not living lives of financial destitution. We are living lives of waste. This is Mr. John D. Rockefeller, and he is the richest American of all time. According to some estimates, accounting for inflation, his net worth was $340 billion. I think maybe Elon Musk might be, might be more than that now. I don't know. But at least at the time when I was doing research for this, he was the richest American of all time. However, here's the fact. You live a better life than him. Just imagine, if you want to go on a trip, to Italy, to Venice. How do you, what would you do? You just, you can be laying in bed and with a couple taps of your finger, you can book a plane ticket to go to Venice. Isn't this right? He couldn't do that. In fact, in his day, they didn't have running water in the buildings. If you want an education nowadays, yeah, literally, again, laying in bed with one of these devices, you can watch lectures from the greatest minds in the world. He didn't have that. We are living in an entirely different world. Back in those days, the life expectancy was much lower than today, the advancement of medical technology. The, the list goes on and on and on, and none of us are billionaires today. At least I don't think we are. If you are, please talk to me afterwards. But looking at this comparison, how, how else can we measure, how else can we, what other way can we describe ourselves than that we are the wealthiest yet most wasteful generation that has ever walked the earth? Dave Ramsey put it well. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress, money we don't, uh, to impress people we don't like. <laughs> this is indeed the world in which we live today. So we need to bust this myth. How do we do that? We need to stop accepting society's narrative about money. We need to stop associating money or happiness with consumption. We need to stop believing that we are the financial victims, stop living beyond our means, stop worrying about what others may think of us. The Bible has something to say about this. I want to start at the verse at the bottom, okay? This is Philippians 4.13. We, we've heard this verse before, I'm sure. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
We hear this even on the football field, right? I can go win the Super Bowl because I can do all things through him with strength of me. You know, like, this is the, it's like a universal promise. Whenever you just need something to, like, get you through a hard time, here's, here's a promise. But let's go back and see what's the context that led Paul to say this line, to claim this promise. What was it? that he was talking about. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is Paul saying here? The challenge of remaining content is so difficult that I need all the power and strength I can get from Jesus to help me do that. And so Paul here is describing, in a sense, the root of all evil. The love of money is so powerful that we need to have this promise in our back pocket at all times because it's a temptation that is always lurking. And so what's the point I'm trying to say? Rather than falling into the narrative that society and the media and entertainment and uh, the American dream, whatever, is trying to force feed us, we need to remember what the Bible says, and that is to learn to have a spirit of contentment. Money, okay, now this is an important point. This is a counterpoint, all right? So I need to balance myself out a little bit. Leo Rostin said, money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. And this is a counterpoint because I want to be careful not to leave the impression that, oh, if being content means being satisfied with less, or that we're just living lives of waste, then going to the opposite extreme of just discarding everything and, and living in a cardboard box and just being impoverished like, you know, the monks that just travel around panhandling, like that somehow is equated to holiness. I want to dispel that myth as well. We're going to talk more about this um, as we go along, but also uh, next week particularly, the idea here is not to say we need to force ourselves into some sort of you know, difficult, impoverished position to gain some spiritual attainment. The point is the spirit of contentment is to be satisfied with what we have, to be economical with what we have. But let's face it, there is a minimum threshold, a certain threshold of material possessions that we need in order to lead productive lives, okay? So I don't want to be misunderstood here. A certain level of money is needed to pay for the necessities of life, okay? And so in a way, having money gets us to that point of stability, uh, and that is, in fact, required for security and happiness. But it has also been said that one of the best things we can do for the poor is to not be one of them. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind. So I want to make sure we balance this point. All right, so let's, get on, let's go on to number four. Myth number four kind of comes in two flavors, all right? Two flavors, that's why there's a 4A and 4B. The first version of it says you can't live without debt or that being debt-free is a bad idea. So this notion that debt is indispensable, that's a myth. But then the other myth I want to address is this idea that it's a sin to be in debt, so you see the both, both extremes of this idea. Let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. The Bible says, Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. The borrower is servant to the lender, Proverbs 22, 7. So it's clear. The Bible is clear. Debt is not 
something that you want to carry around. Don't owe anyone anything, and the borrower is servant, and really that term is better translated slave to the lender. So debt is not a good thing. However, I want to take a look at this story. And in two weeks, we're going to take a deeper dive all about debt and how to manage it. But this story found in 2 Kings chapter 4 is insightful. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take his, my two children to be his slaves. Literally, slave to the lender. Right? This, we see that. That is literal. Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. What? This poor woman's already in debt. They're going to come and take her sons to be slaves. And what does he tell her to do? Get further into debt. If it is a sin to be in debt, what in the world is Elisha doing? Okay, well, let's keep going. This woman is asked to take out a business loan to purchase some equipment to fund her little enterprise here, all right? She took on some debt to finance increased productivity for her home business, to use business terms. However, notice, Elijah says, don't borrow too few. Like, I'm not sure about this, but let's keep reading. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And, she poured the, and, uh, and, the, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your son can live on the rest. So she was in real, a real predicament. She was already in debt, where she was going to lose her two sons. The prophet says, get further into debt, not just with the creditors, but with all of your neighbors, all of your church members. Borrow all the pots in the kitchen, in the, in the kitchen at church. I mean, like, just all the pots and pans, everything you can get. And imagine if she lost them. Imagine if she broke them. What, what condition would she have been in then? I mean, this was a serious situation. What is the point I'm trying to make? Apparently, in the eyes of God, there are circumstances under which it is appropriate to borrow. Don't stone me. I just read what the Bible said. And I'm going to give you a little teaser so you're not going to be in too much consternation between now and when we discuss this. The basic principle is that borrowing money, according to the story, is only acceptable if what you're borrowing for has the potential to pay back the debt. Okay? That is a fundamental point here. She's not borrowing money to go on a vacation. So we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks to really dig deeper into this. But the point I'm just merely leaving is this. Is it a sin to be in debt? Clearly not. But is sin something, or debt rather, something that we ought to promote? No. Let me put it this way. Is it a sin to be sick? No. Is it a sin to be a slave? No. But do you want to be in either of those conditions? No. That's the class of thing 
that debt is in. Debt is bad, but not a sin. It is like slavery. You want to extricate yourself from it as soon as possible, but it is not. There are certain times in which it is, uh, it is uh, appropriate. All right, we've got to hurry on here. So that was point number four. Myth number four, we're on myth number five now. This is also point A and point B, okay? This is now talking about investing. Myth number one, live your life while you're young and wait until you're older before saving. So basically it's saying investing is only for the old people. B, investing is only for rich people. So you should only invest if you already have money. If you don't have money, just protect your money. Like, stash it under the mattress. So what about this? Let's take a look at this. Example. We have Thrifty Tiffany and Spendy Sally. They are the exact same age. Okay? Born the same day, same year, same age. Tiffany, on one hand, she saves $2,000 a year from age 20 to age 30. So for 10 years, she invests $20,000 of her own money. And she invests and she gets an 8% rate of return. And then she stops on her 30th birthday and never invests another dime. But on that day that she stops investing, her friend Sally starts investing. So she did not invest at all in her 20s. But now that she turns 30, she says, oh, I'll make up the time. I'm going to invest twenty or $2,000 every year from age 30 all the way to age 65. And she gets the same rate of return. So she invests $70,000 over a span of 35 years. All right, you get the numbers. Sally puts in significantly more of her own capital for a significantly longer period of time. Tiffany, the only difference is she did it 10 years earlier. Who has more money when they turn 65? Okay, that's the question. Let's take a look. Tiffany will have significantly more. She will have half a million dollars, while Sally will just have 380000 So, of course, the question is, how can this be? How does this work? It's not magic. It's simply the power of compound interest and time. Take a look at this graph. The blue bars are Tiffany's bars, and Sally is the red. You notice that this is not a straight line. It's a hockey stick graph, meaning this is exponential growth. The power of compound interest is that you're not just earning simple interest on the principal, but the interest earns interest. And the more interest you earn, the more interest it earns for you. And what's the secret sauce to make compounding interest really powerful and and, and supercharged? It's time. It's time. And so... The Chinese proverb says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And you might be thinking now, is that something that's stated in the Bible? You'd be surprised to know who actually said this. Matthew 25, verse 27, Jesus himself, in the parable of the servants with the talents, he says, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. The story of the talents tells us that what God has given into our care, we have a responsibility to improve upon and to grow. And that includes the literal thing that was in the story, which is money, okay? 
Um, and of course, you've got to remember, in context of what we said about earlier, we're not just trying to get rich and all of that, but um, there is something to be said about being responsible stewards in that regard. So that's myth number five. Okay, myth number six. This one we're not going to spend a lot of time on because we're going to come back to this when we talk about debt as well. But I've heard this a lot recently, and that is renting is a waste of money. Buying a house is always better. Have you ever heard this before? Never rent. Rent as little as possible. Always buy. Buy, buy, buy. Everyone wants to buy a house. It's a secret to unlocking the wealth, uh, getting on the treadmill or whatever they say. Well, here are a few quick points, and we're going to have to save the, the juicy bits for a few weeks down the road. But the rent versus buy equation, <clears throat> we have to remember, is that the costs of home ownership are greatly underestimated. You've got to remember this. Buying a house, the mortgage payment is the minimum you will pay, whereas the rent that you pay is the maximum you're going to pay. There is a huge delta between those two numbers, and depending on the cost of maintenance and HOA fees and insurance and upkeep and whatever else there is involved with owning a house, you got to take that into consideration. But the basic consideration, buy if you're ready to put down roots. If you are going to be, if you're going to be in an area for a long period of time, then buying makes sense. But if you are going to move in a few years, then renting is almost always the better option. And you want to consult a rent versus buy calculator. We're actually going to break this down in a couple weeks and we'll give you an example and all of that. But this has been a frequent question, particularly with the housing market. Like everywhere I go speaking, everyone's like, should I buy a house? 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 I'm like, okay, let's talk about buying a house. So we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, but I want to just at least give you this nugget. All right, so number seven, our last myth of the night, is that God does not want us to prosper and to build wealth. Well, let's take a look at a couple Bible verses. Matthew 19, 24. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't know about, I don't know if I want to be a rich man. If that's going to be the, the risk, it doesn't sound like a good state to be in. Okay, James 5, verse 1 through 3, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. <coughs> your gold and silver is cankered. And the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. I mean, I don't know if there is a more fire and brimstone verse in the Bible. And who, are they, who is the fire and brimstone directed towards? The rich people. So I don't want to be rich. Do you, if this is the con- conclusion of them? Well, wealth is bad based on what we've read. And there are many more verses that we can use to talk about this, right? Is, is that, isn't that what we just read? But we've got to take the full body of Scripture into account, Okay. 3 John verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Does God want us to prosper? According to this verse, he does. Deuteronomy 8, 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. So he gave those rich people the ability to hang themselves? Like, he gave them the ability to get wealth, and then now he's condemning them for the wealth? Like, are you feeling a little tension in these verses? I hope you do, because it's definitely there. Okay, here's another one. Deuteronomy 28. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. 
in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, to heavens to give the rain to your land, and in a season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And by the way, I highlighted that because that is called investing. Lending money to get a return is actually one of the oldest forms of investing. So God here is telling Israel, you're going to have a surplus that you can invest. I'll make you prosperous. So how do we harmonize this paradox of wealth? The Bible condemns greed and excessive riches. We just saw that. But then the Bible encourages prosperity. How can those two things be true at the same time? Well, it all comes down to definitions. What does it mean to be wealthy and prosperous, biblically speaking? Okay, and this is the most important verse that I have tonight. And it's actually baked into the title of the presentation, Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I have found no more balanced statement than this. Prosperity is not having excessive riches beyond measure, but it is also not God's intent for us to be impoverished because this statement tells us the dangers of both extremes. If I am full and I'm able to provide for all of my needs, I become like my own God because I'm so wealthy, what's the temptation? The temptation is to forget God, to forget Him. But if I'm in poverty, I'm also tempted. And the temptation is to steal, and to profane the name of my God, and I might insert to covet. So what does this mean? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So what does it mean to be prosperous? Simply to have our needs met, to have enough. That's the biblical standard of prosperity. If you have enough, everything beyond that is, by definition, more than enough, and it's a surplus. And if that's true, then this holds true as well. That means then the less I need, the easier it is for me to prosper. You understand the math here? It's actually very simple if you define prosperity by your needs. So what's the simple formula to get rich? Have fewer needs. That doesn't sound very American dreamy, right? But that is definitely one of the ways that we can accomplish that. So, inevitably, this leads us to the next question. So, how do I know what's enough? How do I know when my needs are met? And I can speak from the perspective of a financial planner, having gone through my training, this is the number one question to answer in a financial planning scenario. What is it? What is your number that you need? And I'm going to be honest. The number is, there could be a wide variance. It is, no, it is not a financial planner's place to say, you know, everyone should live under, you know, this dollar amount. If you've got kids or a different location and special needs or whatever it might be, it changes. It's a very personal number, okay? But there is a number. And to understand that number, you have to track your expenses. So how do I figure out how much do I need? 
figure out how much you're living on now, right? And then you're going to have to adjust based on that. You've got to start somewhere, and the somewhere is where you are right now. So what do I mean? Track all your expenses. Collect all your receipts, credit card statements, bank statements. Go back three months, six months if you can, and track every dollar. I used to say every penny, but every dollar is good enough, all right? And so how do I do this? There are <coughs> some tools I want to share with you. YNAB literally means you need a budget. Youneedabudget.com is one of the best personal finance softwares that I have come across, but it is not free. Okay, I have some other free options here, but this one is subscription, but it's probably the most high full featured, and it can sync with your, with your services, you know, your bank accounts, credit card statements. It can automatically you know, like, uh, categorize things. You can share it with your spouse, and you can enter your different numbers, and it can do like, beautiful graphs and charts and trends and all of these things, and they have a lot of tutorials. It's a good software. I have no problem recommending it. There's also the Dave Ramsey Every Dollar platform. There is a free version that's kind of limited, and then you can pay up if you want more features. And then the one that I personally use is called Personal Capital. They recently changed the name. Now it has a very difficult name to remember. I think it's called the Empower Personal Dashboard. But Personal Capital is free, 100% free. It doesn't even have any ads. The only thing that they want is to get you to sign up for their wealth management service. Uh, but if you don't have above a certain threshold of assets, then I'll be honest, they don't care about you. But um, you can use that service for free. You can decline the interview, whatever they want. And the service has been really good. And it actually does a great deal more on the asset management and net worth type of calculation side more than the budgeting side. So there are some pros and cons to all of them. But these are three pieces of software that can help you in this journey. And I will say, if you go online and just do some Google searches, there are people that have created, you know, YouTubers and bloggers and so forth have created their own budgeting spreadsheets, Excels and templates and Google Sheets and stuff that you can adopt and adapt to fit your needs. So there are plenty of tools out there that can help you. And when we get to the fourth session, I believe, I will be sharing my system for how to do your budget. Okay, and it's quite different than some of these, but you can use the tools to, to accomplish a lot of what I teach. So you'll have to wait in suspense for that, but these tools, you can get started right away. And a lot of people say, so what do you use? Okay, yes, I have to answer that question. I do use personal capital for managing my asset allocations and all of that, but for my monthly budget, I use Microsoft Excel because I'm boring and I'm a nerd. So it's difficult, it's heavy lifting, it's not what I recommend for most people, but it's what works for me. So just full disclosure, uh, that's what I do. So our final slide for the night to wrap up. Epictetus was a Greek philosopher. He said, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And this, I believe, merely echoes the words and wisdom of Jesus in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That, I believe, should be the foundational attitude that we as Bible-believing Christians have towards our wealth. It is not to have the most. It is not to have the least. It is to be content with what God has given to us. 
and to be mindful as stewards to still improve what he's given to us, but with the mindset that this is my responsibility to my God, not so that I can become my own God. I understand. So this brings us to the conclusion of our uh, message tonight. Neither poverty nor riches, busting common money myths. I don't know if I went over time, but why don't I close with prayer? And then, if we have time for a few questions, I can take questions. And if you need to slip out, you won't offend us one bit. But let's go ahead and conclude with a word of prayer at this time. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have not left us without counsel and advice regarding such a practical area as our money. And as we have just begun tonight, Lord, discussing the principles found in your word, I pray that you will continue to be with us in the coming weeks. Help us. For those of us who have not yet begun the practice of tracking our expenses, help us to get uh, started in this process. Help us to remember where to collect the data and the information, to be diligent and consistent about it. And may you help illuminate our understanding of our financial position so that we can be that good and faithful servant who multiplies the talents that you've given to us. Bless us this evening and go with us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.